Hey guys, welcome back to Keeping It OD Podcast and happy Monday. In today's episode, we'll be interviewing Dr. Carrie Leibowitz and Mr. Michael Robertson from Southern College of Optometry. Dr. Carrie Leibowitz graduated as CEO in 2006. She then went on to complete a residency in primary care at the Memphis VA. She's now an associate professor at SEO and she teaches the theory and methods class. She's also the director of academic support services at SEO. Mr. Robertson is the Director of Admissions and Enrollment Services. He's also a committee member in the ASCO OptumCast Committee and the OET Committee. So without further ado, I know you all have been asking me for an SEO episode, so here it is. So let's just get right into it. I'm going to let my guests introduce themselves, and then we'll get right into answering some questions about SEO. Well, I am Dr. Carrie Leibowitz. I graduated from Southern College of Optometry in 2006, finished my residency in 2007, and immediately came on as faculty at that time. Um, I teach the Theory 1 and 2 didactic courses, as well as a Theory Lab for second years in the summer. And in addition to my teaching responsibilities, I am the Director of Academic Support at SCO which means I uh, coordinate the tutoring program and assist anyone that's having any academic difficulties. Um, I've been in Memphis since 1992 and I love it. And I hope everybody comes and visits us. And I'm Mike Robertson. I'm the Director of Admissions and Enrollment Services at SCO. And I've actually been at SCO two different times. Uh, I won't tell you the first one because it'll date me too much, but mm -hmm. I came back in 2007 and have been here since in actually the same exact position that I had before. And so all together, I've got about 20 years at SCO and I have uh, lived in Memphis now for probably 30 years. I grew up right, right outside of the city. So Memphis has always been home. And like Dr. Leibowitz said, uh, y'all come down and visit us. Awesome. Um, we're super excited to have you guys on the show and a lot of people have been waiting for an SEO episode so we finally have one. Um, so let's just start out with just an overview of the Southern College of Optometry program, um, the didactics, the clinical, all the ins and outs, um, what makes your program stand out, what makes it different from all the other programs? Um, well good it's an overview of an SCO program is that's hard to do. It's it's four years. Um, <laughs> obviously, with first and second year, the students are going to be more heavily involved in didactic um, lecture type instruction. <clears throat> Although even in second year, we start preparing them for patient encounters. Um, once third year hits, there's more of a shift to clinical focus, yet they're still taking didactic courses and preparing for national boards. And then in fourth year, it is um, almost strictly a course except for responsibilities they have towards national boards and state licensing, um, almost strictly clinical care at that point. Two rotations outside of SCO, one at a private practice and one at an institutional, and then one rotation on SCO's campus. Um, all the while, they are, our students are notoriously um, involved, not only in SCO's campus, but as well as our community. Um, so it's a very busy four years. Um, and I'm guessing that they would say that it's, it's pretty much a blur by the time they get to the end of it. 
um, simply because there's so much happening in those those quick four years. And, and I would just add that uh, we've been around since 1932, so this is not a new ball game for us. I know there are a lot of new schools out there, um, but and we are one of only two schools that only teach optometry. So we have no other curricula off offerings. Uh, you're going to be taught by all ODs. Now, some of our ODs have PhDs or masters in, in other fields, but I think we may be the only one that uh, can tell you that your professors are always going to have been there and done that, uh, if you will, because they're optometrists. That is awesome. Um, so I know optometry school is obviously very academic heavy and being at a school as great as SEO, you guys are definitely going to keep um, your students very involved. But uh, what are some other ways that students can be involved on campus when they're not in class or studying for exams? Well, I would just say that uh, one of the biggest things is membership in one of the 20 some odd organizations that we have. You know, a lot of undergrads don't understand that when they come to professional school, there is going to be time to do something other than study. And a lot of what our students are doing or what most students are doing in the country uh, is learning about becoming a practitioner. You know, you can read textbooks and attend lectures, et cetera, but there's a practice that has to go on. So uh, we have lots of organizations that help uh, stimulate their interest in whatever field they're in. For example, there's an optometric private practice club. There are two groups that go uh, on mission trips to Central and South America every year. And SPOSH was actually founded at SCO in the 1970s, and it's now spread, I think, to just about every college campus. Uh, so we also have uh, one at least social organization. The rest are mainly uh, service-oriented type programs, or again, specialty. There's a contact lens society, a sports vision society, et cetera. We have a healthy intramural program uh, with an activity center on campus that allows for volleyball, racquetball, basketball, et cetera, in addition to weightlifting equipment. So uh, the only thing that they're really not heavily involved in is employment. And we uh, did have a healthy uh, st a student worker program, but the federal government saw fit to cut that program by 75%. So uh, right now it is difficult to get an on-campus job and uh, we discourage off-campus unless it's maybe on the weekend for eight to 10 hours. Awesome, you guys have mentioned a lot of things that makes SEO stand out, but are there anything else that you can think of that could help a student making a decision between SEO and maybe a different program what makes SEO different from other programs other than the stuff that you guys have already mentioned? Well, I'm gonna break your rule because this is something that was already mentioned but I think it should be reiterated, is that I have always been aware that we had an advantage being a private institution because we are optometry focused and we're not sharing resources or classrooms or even instructional time with dentistry or pharmacy or anything like that. I have especially noticed it since the pandemic hit, how 
when I'm speaking to instructors at other campuses, and of course it's no one's, I'm not saying that they're at fault in any way, it's just the nature of what's happening, is that them being part of a larger university system means that they are stuck under the larger university system's decision-making tree when it comes to the pandemic and things like that. And SCO being an independent and private institution, we have been able to um, adapt and make modifications as needed much more quickly than, um, than some of the other schools have had the freedom to do. So again, I think that that is, is uh, something that should be definitely highlighted about SCO. And then we've already hit on this as well, but Memphis is also um, a lovely attraction. And um, the community at SCO, the family feel of SCO is legitimate. Um, and I think that it is an, uh, another side effect of the way that SCO has, has sort of positioned itself within the community is that we want to be an active member and we are, and that sort of leads to a community feel and that leads to a family feel and that leads to an inclusive feel for our patients. So it all kind of flows downhill in a fabulous way. A couple of things I would just add to Dr. Leibowitz's comments. Uh, I often tell visitors to look at our yearbooks in our lobby. There are gonna be two to four pages of wedding pictures and baby birth pictures. And I think that shows you the familial aspect of SEO. I would dare say that any other uh, university uh, college has that much uh, page uh, print dedicated to something like a wedding. And that just shows you that we are small and we know everything just about, about all of our students and staff. So we only have 539 students. So it almost sounds like a cliche when we say that we are uh, like a family, but it's true. Uh, I often say that we are more like high school than undergrad, certainly not from an academic rigor but perspective, but from the fact that we all pretty much know each other. We're all uh, in this together. And if you're in the lunchroom and studying optics and you don't know what the problem is supposed to answer to the problem is supposed to be, you're guaranteed that every other person sitting in that lunchroom, every other student is going to know how to help you um, because everybody's in the same boat. So I think there's something to be said for uniformity in instruction and uh, uniformity in students all being on the same track. That sounds awesome. You guys have um, already mentioned the community and um, SEO's role and their student um, role in the community. So um, can you just go ahead and reiterate what the patient population is like in Memphis? What kind of ocular disease um, are students exposed to during their time at SEO? Well, um, as is the case in any city large enough um, you're going to find patients of every walk of life. Um, we do, Memphis is, is an impoverished city. There is a lot of, of poverty in Memphis and with poverty comes uh, compromised healthcare and health accessibility. So unfortunately we do see a lot of sick um, patients. There's going to be a lot of diabetic um, retinopathy, a lot of hypertensive retinopathy. We see a lot of glaucoma. 
Um, we see a lot of um, UV related changes. So not only cataracts, but also pingueculas and things like that with ocular surface disease. Um, but we have multiple clinics and within our clinics, you're going to find a different patient population within each. And so our main um, on campus at the eye center, you're going to find um, you know, patients that will fit within multiple departments. So they may be in our contact lens, they may be in vision therapy, they may be in ocular disease or adult primary care or the like. And then we have a clinic at the University of Memphis. And so there's a lot of um, sports vision and vision therapy and contact lens fits that happen with the college age population. We have our clinic at Crosstown, which is more of a boutique feel. So it's going to have um, kind of a more high-end clientele, but it also serves the general population as well. But um, it's, it's kind of unique aspect is, is the optical and the, the way that they have arranged the building space to kind of let people, um, our students as well as our patients experience that type of business model. So really, um, I hate to be so general, but we see a little bit of everything and we do so on purpose. Um, but to specifically your disease question, we're gonna see a lot of systemic disease like hypertension, diabetes, um, and then ocular wise are probably most common would be glaucoma um, and ocular surface issues. I hope that answers. And I, and I think that one thing that for a lay person like me, you know, not being an optometrist, I'm always uh, fascinated with the stories. I'm a big believer that individual stories can, can demonstrate a lot. And <clears throat> recently, I guess it was actually last year, I sat in on a, a class where students talk about difficult cases that they had. And it was three young men who had uh, a patient. I think two of them actually worked with the lady and the other one just helped them with the a summary and she couldn't speak, she couldn't hear, she uh, was under her grandmother's care, she had, I can't remember if she had cataracts or glaucoma uh, and the grandmother refused to allow her to have any more treatment because she was scared that the, the granddaughter was going to be in more pain than she was already in and those students had to perform, I mean just for me personally, thinking about performing a vision exam where the patient can't respond to anything uh, has got to be difficult. But I think what struck me more was how those students reacted. And those students were, were deeply affected. Um, you could tell it was a personal thing for them that they went in trying to help a patient who was severely uh, in many ways handicapped and they really couldn't and they couldn't talk it was not their role to talk the grandmother into changing her mind and when you just see a st students taking investment in uh, difficult patients uh, it, it really kind of makes me feel like uh, we're doing the right thing and then we're going to bring in homeless patients and we're going to bring in mentally ill patients and I tell applicants all the time, you know, those are the patients where you can learn lots about how to handle difficult cases. You're not probably going to own a clinic where you bring in homeless people every day. I understand that. But 
you're going to have patients who are going to be difficult in some form or fashion. And we're going to put you through the ringer here so that you're better prepared when you leave. Awesome. Yeah, it's definitely really important to just not, you know, know how to do the exam when the patient is, you know, cooperative and everything. You're going to definitely have days when your patient doesn't want to sit in the chair or can't give you an accurate reading of um, the chart and stuff like that. Um, so going off of that, um, how do you prepare your students for national boards? I know there's um, some didactic portions and a practical portion. So how are students um, prepared for that SCO specifically? Well, in all honesty, I believe Mr. Robertson just answered your question just with the clinical um, analogous of it or analogy of it is that our students are preparing for national boards because they've been through our curriculum. Um, it's not a lot of students will say or in interviews, you know what, you know, when I ask them what has attracted you to SCO and they're like, oh, your board passage rate is amazing. Well, you have to do that for us. I mean, we're not doing, I'm not taking the test for you. I already did that. Um, and so I believe that the level of learning experience that we have in place is adequate for board preparation in and of itself, because we find the information that we're teaching you to be so necessary, not to pass boards, but to serve your patients. Yes, we need to pass boards so that you can serve your patients, but there's, you just can't know, and you can't know everything, but you should certainly try. And so I think that the um, caliber of the curriculum that we deliver, as well as the, this is going to sound like it's a bad thing, but it's not. The social pressure around them to do well is that our students are unbelievably smart and giving people and they are contagious with one another. And so they will push each other to stay on top of things and they will help each other to stay on top of things. That is very much a like, let's pick everybody up and go forward together, not get out of my way. I'm on my way to the top. Um, and so I would say that the curriculum is challenging. Our students are spectacular. Um, and in addition to those two things pre-existing, we obviously do have specific things that we do to prep our students for national boards. So in year three, um, they will have, like I will go back and revisit with the third years and go over some of the core concepts from theory one. Um, that they are implementing in practice, but probably haven't thought about the equation in a good bit. And so we do have some review of first and second year um, basic science classes, as well as core optometry classes. So we do that for our students. Um, when we get to the didactic, or excuse me, the clinical portion of national boards, we do have um, two exam rooms in the eye center that are designed to mimic the national board testing site. So our students are allowed to become comfortable within that test scenario or as close as possible. And again, they are given as much time as possible to practice. And all of these additional practice times and review sessions, again, I cannot reiterate enough, just build on the fact that our core curriculum and our core patient experience and exposure um, works to prepare them for boards without their really knowing it. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's 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 very interesting to watch the eyes bug uh, in the beginning of the third year as they're heading towards uh, boards in the spring. But one thing that uh, that is very key, and it really goes back to classes like those that Dr. Leibowitz teaches, is that every single course you take, every lecture you've ever listened to at SCO is available in the library to you. So you log on to software and there is the first day of optics class and the first day of theory and methods class from your first year and you can go through and re-listen to every single lecture if you choose. Those are online right after classes. So it's really more of an immediate help, but uh, when you get to boards, they're gonna go back to first year, as Dr. Leibowitz said. So <clears throat> you're just not gonna remember some of those equations and, and, and theories, et cetera. So being able to log in, you can do keyword searches, uh, the recordings include the PowerPoint presentation as well as the uh, voice uh, of the professor. So if you don't, don't want to listen to the whole thing and you just want to hear the part about glaucoma, you type in glaucoma and there comes the part of the lecture with that. So it's, it's a great uh, method for, um, for helping students when they're off campus and you just don't want to read notes again, if you will. And I'm going to, I'm going to beat you to it, Karen, and segue into uh, the next topic. And um, we also have a program that Dr. Leibowitz heads up where you can get a tutor. And the, 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 one of the best things about a tutor is that obviously the student in need is learning but the student who is tutoring is refreshing his or her uh, background in topics that will be discussed and quizzed on the national board. So it's a win-win process. The tutor's making money, the tutor's reviewing for the boards, and the 2T is learning the, the areas that he or she was weak in. Um, just a quick question. Did you guys always have that um, lecture recording system or was that just something that you um, adapted when um, COVID happened this year? It existed pre-COVID. Um, we started recording lectures. Oh, it's been six years, I think. I think so. Six or seven. So, yeah, it's been a while. The new we have just switched over from an old recording server or software package to a new one, and it has even more. As as Mr. Robertson was saying, um, you're able to search for keywords and things like that. So it's even more nuanced and um, user friendly than before. <laughs> but everything has been recorded for many years now. That was not COVID related. <laughs> I was just going to say, uh, Dr. Leibowitz can tell you about, I know the next topic really is media remediation and she deals with that a lot. But not a lot because it doesn't happen very often. <laughs> <laughs> um, I like the way that you, for, that you wrote this question, Karen. It says, you know, failure is never anticipated, but is bound to happen. What is the remediation process like at SCO? Well, failure is never anticipated and thankfully at SCO it's actually fairly rare. Um, many of the things that we have already highlighted about SCO that, that contribute to our students' success, like the community feel, the tutoring program, 
um, classmates wanting their fellow classmates to succeed, many of those things naturally um, intervene with these students before a failure actually happens. And so truly failing a class is not um, very common. It does happen though. And obviously our standards are in place for a reason and we want to uphold them. The remediation process at SCO depends on the student themselves and what it is that is being remediated. So if they actually fail a course, um, then, and they have been, it has been determined that the student will need to remediate that course, then they work one-on-one -on -one with the instructor of record for that course. And the instructor of record has the freedom to um, evaluate the student, figure out what it is that's going on, and then tailor make a remediation process for that student. Most of what happens, I think, of most of what you're thinking of as remediation in this question would actually be happening in SCO before the final grade. So if you've not done well in a lab practical, for example, then your professor is going to let me know as the director of academic support, I'm going to reach out to you and then we're going to set you up with a lab tutor or your classmates, somebody that sat or someone will know, right, that it did not go well and generally someone will reach out to you and say, let's go work on this and let's figure this out. So a lot of what happens as far as remediation at SCO is actually preemptive rather than um, post -cat you know, catastrophe. But we do have um, the rare failures that do occur that is handled on a one-to-one -one basis with our faculty members. And then of course, overseen by academic support. I mean, excuse me, not academic support, academic affairs. Um, so there's multiple people involved, but it's really up to the instructor of record and the student themselves to determine when and if that topic has been remediated um, satisfactorily. I really like that because um, it kind of follows the same philosophy, um, like what optometrists need to do is prevention um, instead of um, you know, treating the issue. So just preeminently just looking out for that student and seeing, um, you know, their trend on if they've um, been getting a lot of low grades and just kind of catching it um, as soon as possible so that you don't have to, you know, completely remediate the whole course. Um, I think that is absolutely that different. Yeah, that is a really good uh, parallel that you found there. Absolutely. So we've touched on a lot of things about the program um, and what you guys offer to students. So um, I'm just going to kind of rip back and go back to applicants. So um, someone that's listening to this right now and they're um, considering SEO and they do want to apply, um, but they kind of don't know where they stand. So what makes a competitive applicant? Well, one thing I'm going to say is uh, I, I love to tell stories. So here comes another story. I sat on a panel at a university with someone from the medical school, from a pharmacy school, et cetera. And somebody in the audience asked, you know, what's the most important thing you look for in an applicant? And luckily I was last. So I got to hear three or four people tell an out flat out lie, basically. Uh, because there's not a school in the United States of America that doesn't look at GPA, I think, as high uh, at the top of their list. That is a bottom line. If you don't have the grades, you're not getting in. Now, is that what makes you, the only thing that makes you competitive? No. 
but you must have solid performance in the classroom. So that's the first thing. And for us at SCO, uh, we're going we're gonna to go down to the next numbers, and that's going to be the OAT. And for us, we are probably one of the uh, most restrictive or disciplined schools regarding the OAT. And we haven't admitted a candidate with an, a sub 300 academic average in probably 25 years or more. And sometimes candidates get really uh, perturbed and will even say, well, um, I've got a full point and this has literally happened. Uh, but we did research at one point to see what was the correlation, the best correlation for predictability in passing the boards. And we found that the that low performance on the OAT was more related to low performance on the national boards than any other uh, factor. So we decided then that you know 300 is the is the mean or median uh, score and it's the 50th percentile. So we're just not going to go below that for now. <laughs> you know I've learned over the years not to say ever, uh, but. We have literally had four points with a 290 that we did not interview. So uh, for us, the OAT is pretty much in line with the, with the GPA. We will tell candidates that they ha can have some balance. So a 3.9 could have a 300 and be much more competitive than a 3.1 with a 300. Uh, so we're going to look at both. We're also going to look at the trends. Did you start off school? Uh, Poorly. I can't tell you how many transcripts I've seen with lots of D's and F's, but then they something happened and they righted the ship and they ended strongly in their, I mean, literally have seen, you know, all A's in junior and senior years. Well, unfortunately, the GPA is never going to, to be that high. So we're going to say, well, you know, the proof is in the OAT. Uh, you, you know, you've got a candidate here who's a 3.1 and one here, there's a 2.9 and one's a 3.9. Take the same test and let's see how all of you perform. And we think that helps differentiate between, you know, candidates will often say, well, I went to a really tough school. Well, if that's the case, that's going to come out on the test if you prepare as you should prepare. Um, so we're going to look at academics, we're going to look at test scores, but then we're going to look at how much of a participant were you in helping make other people's lives better, whether that was through humanitarian type efforts, volunteer efforts, uh, whatever it may be. For some candidates, that means they had to work, so they're making lives better for a family sometimes, and that's equal to us as somebody who has tons of volunteerism. So it, it's, it's beyond the numbers, but it's also leadership, volunteerism, and then perhaps, uh, I don't think you can emphasize enough the importance of, of communication and how does the, the person talk and, and uh, demonstrate that they have a way to connect with a patient. If you can't connect with an interviewer, you probably are going to have a little bit of a problem connecting with the patient. And I tell an applicant flat out, I need to get some comfort level from you that you can look at a patient and say, 
Mrs. Smith, we need to refer you to a neurologist or an ophthalmologist because we think you have a tumor. So many candidates, I don't, maybe I shouldn't say so many, but there's a segment of the candidate population that literally thinks that optometry school is going to be easy or easier than another health profession school. And I'm here to tell you, you are sadly mistaken and you're going to be for a, a rude awakening. So, you know, a, a student has to uh, understand that it's more than books. It is about being a good healthcare practitioner and a good communicator. Um, as far as the, the OAT fitting into the equation again, uh, we will not interview anyone who doesn't uh, take the OAT. Now we are accepting the MCAT and GRE and that's a whole nother ball game. But uh, if you are a 4.0 and you're saying, well, I'm gonna take the OAT on February 1st. Well, I've got to wait till February 1st uh, and see your score because we can't, uh, we're just not going to rely on a GPA. There's too many differences among institutions and what you learned in a classroom. Um, candidates are often concerned will ask, well, what if I took my courses online? Well, we accept online courses uh, and the transcript never tells me whether a course was taken in a classroom or it was taken online or whatever. So I don't really know looking at a transcript, but the point is that we all had different educations and that test, again, we feel like becomes kind of an equalizer and says, okay, let's take the student from an Ivy League school, the student who went to community college for two of their four years, give them the same test and see how they perform. Uh, but again, we're not going to interview you until we have uh, uh, your file complete and verified through OptumCast and we have an OAT score. Um, so I think you touched on that briefly, um, the interview process. So pre-COVID and hopefully post-COVID, how can an applicant prepare for their SEO interview um, as far as, you know, getting there maybe a day early, what the day would look like, um, and what the conversation during the interview should kind of be uh, anticipated? Um, how can applicants prepare for that? Well, uh, one thing I tell literally to prepare is to get not a friend, but you need to find a faculty member or a, a colleague, somebody who's not your best buddy, and they need to ask you, you need to have a mock interview. Some campuses will have mock interview services available, and they need to ask you questions that are, uh, you might be asked in an interview. And the other thing is, is to be recorded. Nowadays, all you got to do is flip out that phone and record because if you've never watched yourself speak, now since COVID, I think a lot of people who have never watched themselves speak are now seeing that. Uh, but it is amazing when you critique yourself or have someone else critique yourself that you see how many times you say, um, you see how many times you use your hands when you may not should be using them. I don't, you know, I don't know how many people watch The Crown, but uh, the, when I was watching The Crown the other day, the, the I don't know which character, the Queen's grandmother, I think, uh, literally tied Princess Diana's hands so she would not use them. 
so much when she spoke and I thought, that's brilliant. I mean, sometimes candidates flail, sometimes they say the word like 6,000 times. I've had candidates who said it so much that I couldn't listen to what they were saying because my brain kept doing a tally mark on how many times they said like. So you've got to practice it with somebody who's not your best buddy who's going to say, oh, you did a great job. Uh, you need them to get down to the nitty gritty. You need them to say, you need to work on X. You need to keep better eye focus. And that's whether you're online or you're in person. Now in person is, is, is so much more revealing because you, know, you can angle your camera just like me right now, y'all don't know that I'm actually making ugly gestures to you with my hands because you can see me. And so it's a little different when you're doing it online versus in person. But when you're in person, I get to see everything. And I can't emphasize that enough. When you're doing an online one, I can only see part of you, but I can see part of you. So don't wear a t-shirt, don't wear a ratty sweatshirt, you know, look like a professional. This is professional school you're going to. Uh, the other thing I encourage is, is really just rudimentary, and that is to study the profession a little. You may have shadowed some, but did you learn about the laws in your state? Did you learn about how uh, one state can do a procedure and another state can't, especially if you're going back to the state that you're from, you want to know that. You want to know, nobody's going to ask you in an interview, uh, have you performed certain procedure? And if so, please tell us in the steps that you do that. No, that's not what an interview is for. But they are going to say, well, what do you know about this? This is your profession now. You are becoming a part of it through the interview. So what do you know about it? Can you uh, maintain good eye contact? Can you tell us um, some things about you that give us some insight as to what makes you tick? So practice in front of somebody that's not your best bud. Look up the, the legislative process for your state. Um, uh, practice um, recording, have someone record you. All of those things can make you uh, perform much better in an interview. So if you were coming to SCO's campus for interview day, what should you anticipate? How um, does the interview day look like? Well, if we're gonna do it in person, you're gonna arrive and uh, be greeted by some very friendly uh, security officers and they're gonna uh, send you up to our office and we're going to have kind of a little bit of a brief overview of how the day will proceed. And then you're going to meet with an admissions counselor first. Well, it depends on the, how the format is, but part of that day will be meeting, <clears throat> excuse me, with an admissions counselor who will go over your file, make sure you understand that uh, what documents we have on file for you, uh, what's missing, if you're missing any prereqs, that kind of thing. And then we're gonna ask that candidate a few questions based on what he or she told us in the application and especially in the essay and how much experience they have, et cetera. It probably lasts 15 or 20 minutes. Then you're going to have an interview with a faculty member and that's going to be a blind interview. And that just means that he or she will know nothing except 
the, the name of the candidate and the state that they're from. So they get a blank sheet of paper. And we like that because we have one person doing a blind interview, another person doing a, an open interview, maybe interview is not the right word, but at least a few minutes of, okay, here's your file. Here's the, the person without a file. And it's so interesting to look at the comments that come in after that. And nine times out of 10, they match. So you don't necessarily have to, uh, you know, be uh, exactly alike, I guess you would say. Um, the other thing is uh, we're going to uh, feed you lunch. We're going to give you a tour. And that tour is going to go through the I Center, the Activity Center, and our main academic buildings. So you're going to spend about a half of a day on campus. We encourage you to certainly come in the night before, and then we encourage you to stay and start looking at your housing decisions and that type of thing. Your tour is led by a current student, so that gives you, and it's small groups, uh, that gives you some time for some one-on-one. -on -one. In addition, those students are going to come to lunch and tell you about where they live, what they pay for rent, how they found their roommates, and, and that kind of thing. Awesome. Um, so I know this next question might be, you know, a little bit confidential, so you feel free to cover as much or as little as you um, feel comfortable sharing. But after the interview, um, the open and the closed file, how um, does the applicant review process look like? Um, like a SEO, um, do you know how like to, to make a decision right away um, after the interview or how, how does that look? Well, we have a committee um, of about five people and we may be seven now and try to keep it uneven, but um, we review the file within a week usually. And uh, if a decision is made to offer a seat, we call the candidate uh, to tell them we don't like to email that we like to call them. And we often uh, will make a scholarship decision at the same time. So um, if the candidate is offered a seat, it depends on the time of year when he or she is uh, accepted as to how long they will have to submit a deposit. Our philosophy has always been, this is the, one of the most important decisions of an applicant's life. And we're not gonna tell you, you have one week or two weeks to do it. Uh, we're going to start the year off giving you eight weeks, then in October we'll drop it down to seven and then we'll just keep dropping it down until we get to the spring and eventually it's going to get down to one week, but that's in March or April when, you know, we can't, we can't uh, tarry too long. So uh, we like to give candidates plenty of time. They uh, submit a $500 deposit. Uh, again, they can uh, withdraw and get half of that back up until April 1st. So it's a very non-punitive process. It really concerns me that a school would tell you to give $1,000, $2,000 and not have one chance to get that money back if you were to withdraw. So again, we've tried to remain uh, pretty generous in our uh, policies that we work with with candidates. If they withdraw at, uh, on April 1st, a second $500 deposit is due. And after that, it's non-refundable. So uh, we do tighten it up at the end. But again, that's so close to school starting that we feel like we have to do that. So uh, we review. We try to get back decisions within a week. If the candidate is denied, we pretty much have a policy of not denying candidates until March 1st. 
our philosophy has also been that a candidate who has a weakness can often overcome that weakness in the ensuing months. Now, if the weakness is poor communication, well, that's probably a lost cause, but uh, we're not gonna go back and re-interview anyone. But uh, we like to give candidates time. Sometimes we ask them to send us the next semester's grades and we make a decision. Sometimes we ask them to retake the test. Um, one big thing that we do is ask them to shadow more and we are big believers in shadowing. And if a candidate has spent all their time in one commercial practice, we're gonna go tell them to go to a private practice or to an ODMD setting, et cetera, so that they can expand their knowledge. We'll ask them to send a brief essay of that experience, and then we'll make a decision on a second review. So even though the majority of cases are decided on first review, sometimes there's a second uh, with qualifications that we'll tell the candidate. Awesome. So this has been a delight, um, but just in closing, what would be one piece of advice for um, both of you to prospective students interested in attending SCO? I would say that it's going to go back to one of the things that Mike just said, is that when looking back at myself as an applicant, I was so naive in my knowledge of optometry, like true knowledge of the, the profession as a whole to do your homework there um, is to really put in the time to shadow um, so that you yourself know what it is about optometry that you want to do and in that way it becomes less important which school you go to and more important that you find the program that is right for you to be successful in what it is that you're doing. I'm using my hands too much Mike I should tie them. <laughs> I'm going to tie them to my chest. <laughs> The reason that I say that is that SEO is a phenomenal program. It is not the only program in the country that will make phenomenal doctors. And that if an applicant has done their homework and has truly investigated the profession, they're going to find out what an amazing profession it is. And they're also going to find out that there's more than one amazing institution. And so um, having that sort of confidence in the fact that the the endeavor that they're going after is what matters to them, not I must come to SEO. That makes me as an interviewer feel more comfortable about the applicant in general because it just comes across that they truly are doing what they want to do. I will say that nothing frightens me more in an interview than asking an applicant, you know, so tell me how optometry came onto your radar, you know, what, what made you interested in optometry? And they say something like, oh, my mom is an optometrist and I've known that I wanted to be an optometrist since first grade. No, that's not good. You need to go and you need to make sure that you want to be an optometrist. Not that mommy wants you to be an optometrist or daddy or brother or anybody. Not that you looked online and said, oh, you know, optometrists make money and they don't have the suicide rate of a dentist or, I mean, you know, there's all these random reasons that people will come to optometry. Once you do the actual work of getting to know optometry, I think that that will sell it to the applicant because it is such a great profession. Um, and that that comfort that they're making a right decision about optometry puts less pressure on whether they're, they're making a right decision on the school 
And that just gives everybody more space to have a meaningful conversation about both, if that makes sense. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I would just add that uh, I tell candidates to remember that it's a two-way street when you come uh, for the interview at, at any school uh, and you have to find a match. And I think a lot of decisions are made with your heart and your gut. So my advice usually is listen to those two things and ask the questions that are important to you. We're going to ask you questions that are important to us, but you need to flip it and find out what means the most to you. Is it something academic? Is it something about the school setting, the environment, whatever it is? It's a two-way street. Be prepared to ask the school, how many patients am I going to see? What's your average debt? What's your default rate on loans? What's your retention rate? And you should really ask each school the same questions. Awesome. Thank you guys again so much. Hey, we enjoyed it. We did. So that is all for this week's episode. I know it was a long one, but I hope you found it helpful and it answered some of your questions about the SEO program. If you don't want to miss another episode, make sure to follow us on Instagram at keepin.it.od. Also subscribe to the show on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Again, interact with stories. I'd love to hear your opinions and let me know what schools I should bring on next. Lastly, if you or someone that you know would like to collaborate on an episode, I'd love to bring you on. Make sure to email me at keepingitodpodcast at hotmail.com with collab in the subject line, and I'll get back to you as soon as I see the email. Make sure to also follow SCO on Instagram to stay up to date with what they're up to. It's at Southern College of Optometry, all one word. Lastly, I would like to thank Dr. Leibowitz and Mr. Robertson again for taking the time to join me today, and I hope we were able to answer some of your questions. I hope you found this informative, and make sure to tune in next week for a brand new episode all about Indiana College of Optometry, and as always, we will be keeping it OD. Thank you, guys.